Welcome to another episode of Bridging the Gap, where issues of the day meets a biblical perspective. My name is Ryan. I am your host. And on today's episode, um, we will not insert eight minutes and 46 seconds of silence because that's too long. <laughs> we, do, we do love and and uh, appreciate George Floyd's um, involuntary sacrifice uh, for change that is occurring in our country. Unprecedented change. Sorry for interrupting, bro. Is everybody's doing eight minutes and forty six seconds at the beginning of all their podcasts and streams and lives? And yeah, that's that's a long time, bro. Yeah, yeah. Uh, point made, you know what I right. mean? Right. <laughs> a long time. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot, uh, I mean, essentially this, this episode is not just something that <clears throat> was born out of what happened with George Floyd, but um, other people before him and just really a long history of incidents similar to that. Man. So, you know, we're going to be discussing and there's going to be multiple episodes of this, um, but we're gonna be discuss- discussing a number of things. Number one, um, injustice, uh, you know, racial injustice, racial inequity, systemic racism. Um, we're gonna be talking about, on future episodes, we'll be talking about, um, you know, how God views these things, what the Christian's posture should be in light of these things and then some practical steps that can be taken, particularly by the believer, <laughs> um, to affect change for the future. But for now, we're just gonna focus on uh, systemic racism, uh, racial um, inequity, and really just the reality of it all. Um, one of the things that's been revealed to me and it's been exposed is that <clears throat> You know the the you know people of color, the minority communities have been you know crying out for uh, something more, been crying out for change. You know due to events like you know what happened with um, George Floyd and um, others <laughs> who are non and non black communities, particularly white, uh, don't seem to think that um, racial inequity and systemic racism exists. They think it's a myth. You know they think since you know, you know, slavery was so long ago. Slavery was abolished, you know, centuries ago, and that the Civil Rights Act was passed. What was that back in the '60s? I think that all is well. Um, but with my soul, right? <laughs> all is well. But you know, various experiences and and even statistics show that uh, all is not well. And we definitely want to touch on that. And me, me being a uh, a Christian first, but also a person of color. Uh, I, I want to shed some more light on that so that people have an understanding um, of what people of color are going through, why it's wrong, and what can be done about it. So, um, earlier you heard my brother Kendrick. <laughs> hmm. uh, so he'll be on here with me as well as my uh, brother, other brother in the faith, Cornell. And um, just, just, just generally, just kind of like, I'll start with you, Kendra. Just kind of talk about like where you are at um, emotionally, like with what's going on. And then Cornell, you can follow up. Okay. I'm all over. Kendra, tell me when you stop, because you know you be so. So say I'm done, so I can go. 
I'm all, don't worry, Cornell. You'll get your full hour to yourself. Great. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't worry. Or, um, your question. I'm I'm all over the map, man. Like you know, I have some days where you know I want to I want to don you know all black clothes and a black handkerchief over my N95 mask, a Molotov, a lit Molotov cocktail in each hand. Um, and you know, throw it through the window of a Nordstrom, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a Newman Marcus. And then other days, I feel like I want to kneel in front of protesters and and you know beg them to stop. Um, and I'm I'm sure there are people that at that point just tuned me out, right? Um, it's like we as a culture are so sensitive that if there's even the slightest hint of opposition to the movement, then people take this, if you're not for us, you're against us approach. And they don't, they don't, they don't want to hear what you have to say. Um, the, the rioting, the violence, the peaceful protests, uh, the looting has become a juggernaut. Um, and I've, I've often said throughout my social media, while I may not condone rioting, while, while I may not, certainly do not condone the looting, in some st- instances, I don't condone the protesting. Um, I fully understand each of the three. Um, I, I did a post recently of a white woman holding a sign up that basically said if her son uh, <coughs> had been choked to death, if her son had been walking home from the store with Skittles and and a Snapple and killed, and the last thing that he did was cried out her name, and this was a white woman, she said, I ought to burn this darn city down too, and the word was not darn. (laughs) Um, So there, there are some who understand the core of the different things that are happening. And yet there are others that still hold this position that, you know, he must have did something wrong. So so my mindset is is just all of these things swimming around in my head and just the kind of person that I am gives some validity to all of it, right? Like a person, you can't tell someone to not feel what they feel. You have to pause and try and understand what they feel in order to try and reach them with anything, in order, in order to build a bridge of of relationship to carry something across and so because that is inherent in me um you know as frustrated as i may be with the racist white person who thinks it's all a bunch of malarkey i'm still trying to listen and hear and give validity to what to his stance to try and understand where he is to 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 then try and reach him if that makes sense sure sure uh cornell what's going on with you well, one, I want to say, uh, looking back around, it's, it's, it's nice and dark in your background. You're not looking like Brian McKnight. The gospel version of Brian McKnight. You, you better look at those clothes closer. You look like RuPaul. RuPaul. <laughs> he's a, he's all my wife's clothing. That's what you're looking at. <laughs> to be clear. Okay. Hey, but, um, I'll make my short, you know, I think as of the last couple of days. That'll be a first. Uh, <laughs> well, I think 2000, the 2016 election 
kind of started all of it, right? 2015, 2016. Uh, and now here we are again. And uh, my circle is I have a lot of like pastor friends, but almost all of them are white or Vietnamese or Chinese or Filipino, you know, uh, as well as my brothers. But I've been getting a lot of phone calls for them lately because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the cool black dude, right? I'm the one that they know. And I'm the one who, you know, is cool. And, 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 and I don't take that as a slight. I'm cool with that, right? You know, because, you know, it's, we were always all love. <clears throat> so I'm getting a lot of phone calls. And that's what they've been asking me, you know, like, hey, one, how are you doing with it? And two, help us with our blind spots, right? But how are you doing with it? And as this question has been coming about, I've just come to the conclusion that I'm just numb. You know, emotionally, I'm numb. I really don't have any feelings about it. <clears throat> you know, um, when I grew up, um, I was militant. You know, after I saw New Jack City and uh, Boys in the Hood, you know, them little movies, I turned straight militant, right? Yeah. For a long time. But then I ended up coming back around, you know, in college <clears throat> and coming back around because I had friends from all over the world. And so I always feel like I'm in the middle. I feel like I'm kind of torn. I've just gotten to a place where I'm just really numb. You know, I don't, and that's sad. That's sad for me, you know, to see all of this happening and just be numb about it, you know, um, because if I allow myself to feel, I'm going to go to a place. <clears throat> Molotov cocktail in each hand. Yeah, yeah, I don't know to, to that extent, but I'm going to go to a place where it's not going to be healthy for me as a believer, right? right? I'm, sure. I'm going to get to that, that border to where, I'm not going to know what to do and how to, because the last time I was there, I wouldn't really say, right? So I'm going to go back to that place and I'm not going to know how to balance it. So it's sad, but I'm trying to, I'm praying about it now, trying to navigate it. How do I, how do I deal with this? I'm numb. Yeah. Um, now I'm sure you're not the only one who feels that way. When you talk about that numbness. Um, <clears throat> um, what I mean, me personally, you know, I haven't asked. Uh, I had a, a a white friend. He's one of the youth pastors at the church that I attend now, and he reached out to me, and you know, just just offering like comfort and encouragement, just saying, "Hey, yo, I'm here. You know, I love you. I'm with you," um, which was good to hear. Um, and he's he's a white man, <laughs> and <clears throat> he also was doing a mess. He was gonna have a. He's gonna be doing a message later on in the week and he asked me to send him just a 30 to 45 second uh video about you know kind of how i was feeling with everything and one of the things i had mentioned i was like well you know i personally haven't had to uh deal with um i mean one of the one of the, the top themes of it all is like police brutality right which takes many forms <laughs> um but the most um <coughs> Dream, obviously, is is death, being killed by the police. Uh, obviously, I'm still here, so I haven't been killed by the police, but even being, like, beat up, <clears throat> you know, choked out, or anything of that nature, um, I could, I can't really relate, personally. And, and I said that, and I was like, however, I am, you know, because it's happening at a, an alarming rate to people of color, to people who look like me, I'm concerned, and I think a lot of people, other people are the are concerned as well as they're continuing to learn and it's not just learn they don't just hear about it now we're seeing it you know what i mean like like it's 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 so <laughs> it's so in your face now you know between the 
you know, police wearing cameras and people just taking videos. Anytime something starts to go down, people, somebody got their phone out recording, you know, so you can see it for yourself. And which think, still isn't making a difference. You said what? I said, which still isn't making a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like trying to, trying to hold them more accountable. Right. I think uh, under the Obama administration, they started, um, they put a, a, a couple of million towards, you know, police cameras and stuff for law enforcement. And yeah, I mean, you go back to the George Floyd case and- They don't have the cameras on. Well, either that or, I mean, we, we don't know if like they're doing something with, 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 the, with what's been recorded after the fact, but regardless, he was being recorded and he knew he was being recorded yep. and didn't seem to care. <laughs> it's, there's, a, there's a level of, of belligerence. Like, mm-hmm. it's almost like I'm going to record myself doing this so you can see and understand and know that I can do it. Right. And you can't do nothing about it. Exactly, exactly. A lot of arrogance behind it too. Yep. Um, so having said that, you know, I'm definitely concerned and, you know, I, I do plan to have children someday. I don't have any yet, um, you know, and they're, they're gonna be people of color. Um, and if this is something that's going to perpetuate, <laughs> <laughs> if this is something that's going to perpetuate, you know, not only am I concerned for my own life, but I'm concerned for theirs as well, you know, and, and that something needs to change. Um, but <clears throat> I wanted to, let's switch gears. I want to kind of um, get you guys' personal perspective. Um, you, you know, one of the things that's hard to uh, discount is a person's testimony. <laughs> or a person's personal experience, you know what I mean? Right. And I'm wondering if you guys have had any personal experience and if you feel comfortable sharing your personal experience um, with law enforcement and if, <clears throat> you know, you've experienced something that was uh, uh, unfair, unfair treatment, be it it was racially charged or otherwise, um, and just kind of what your take is on that. Uh, Cornell, you can go first. All right, so I I, um, I always acted kind of like blind to it, right? You know, because um, once again, you know, kind of numb, so I never really paid attention to it. Mm-hmm. So I'm always happy, go lucky. You know, uh, I get pulled over by the cops. Hey, officer, what's happening? You know, what's going on? You doing all right today? You know, always, you know, putting people at ease. And so I never really, people around me would say, you know, hey, uh, you know, you, you see what just happened? You know, or or they would say things, but I, I never would catch on because, you know, I was in a different space. But I remember telling my wife, I was like, you know what, I, I've never had an issue with the police. Never. I don't see what the problem is, right? Mm-hmm. And that was just my perspective because I believe in justice, right? I believe in justice, but I also know that justice isn't equal. But I, I believe in justice. So I'm like, well, you know, this or that. But then I was reminded, you know, um, about my high school experience. A friend of mine bought, his dad was an engineer. Our senior in high school bought him a drop top, 1996. This is before rims were even really a thing. Bought him a drop top black uh, uh, 5.0 Mustang with rims on it. And, you know, uh, just amazing. And we would go riding in it. And we lived basically in a white neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I kid you not, when he brought that car, we got pulled over 
had never really, I had never been pulled over. We had got pulled, we were getting pulled over every week when he bought that car. One time it was at 9.30, an officer said, hey, you're playing your, he, he grabbed his uh, identification. My friend uh, worked in the lawyer's office, so he knew his rights. And he immediately attacked the officers. Officers, what are you pulling me over for? Bam, bam, bam. Officers wouldn't have it, took his ID. And then finally he came back and was like, hey, you're playing your music too loud. Uh, the ordinances can't have it loud past 1030. It's like, dude, it's 930. What are you talking about? You know, and it went in on him, right? Then he gave him a ticket for something made up. But every week, that's what it was like. And, you know, just the last little thing is we were in an um, island town. 3 a.m., we got pulled over. Cop followed us for three miles. Two officers finally pulled us over. The officer said, we were like, what took you so long? We saw you way back there. Why didn't you pull us over? I was waiting on backup. You're lying. You weren't waiting on backup. It was two of you guys. How are you waiting on backup? It's still to us. <laughs> you were running my license, trying to see if I had a record. You saw mm. I didn't have a record, but you still felt that you can do something and catch me in something. And now you're pulling us over. And they had they had their hands on their guns, you know, and everything. And so just that whole ordeal <laughs> of being stereotyped, um, because my friend had a nice car and they thought he was a drug dealer. But, you know, and their head is black people can't have nice things, right? Young black people can't have nice things. Or, you know, uh, parents can't buy their children nice things, right? And, and that was their perception, you know. And last thing, you know, uh, on Facebook the other day, my friend literally put up a post. And within two hours, there was two hours, there was over 158 comments. And after a whole day, I think it was like a thousand comments. They said, who's ever had a gun drawn on them? Black man, who's ever had a gun drawn on? Countless people talking about the times they've had guns drawn on them and why. So, I mean, that's my experience. You know, I've had, you know, that whole my friend's car and the stereotyping because they felt black people couldn't have nice things. And they were giving us tickets for, you know, your your, your uh, left turn signal was white instead of amber. That was one of the tickets that he got. You know, then another ticket that he got was, oh, uh, your dealer plates are on uh, one day too long. You know, but that's not where they pulled them over. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's my experience. So to that point, I, and I'll, I'll let you go in a second, Kindred. Um, you know, I, I, I look, I've been finding a lot of data um, that kind of support the, you know, exactly what we're talking about here. <clears throat> there was this book that was written called Suspect Citizens. Okay. And I think the author, Frank R. Baumgartner, uh, Derek A. Epp, and Kelsey Shaw, uh, they reviewed in this book 20 million traffic stops. 20 million. That's a lot. Okay. And that that's significant. Yeah. So in an interview with the Post, this is just like some of the data that they found. And there's a lot more that I could um, re uh, reference. But they said they share what they found. And they said Blacks are almost twice as likely to be pulled over as whites, even though whites drive more on average okay and they said blacks are more likely to be searched following a stop and just by getting in a car a black driver has about twice the odds of being pulled over um and about four times the odds of being searched they found that blacks were more likely and so and so like essentially <clears throat> um and there was another statistic that 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 was based around the stop and frisk rule. You guys are familiar with that, right? Yeah. Okay, so with stop and frisk, they found that about 3% of those encounters 
actually produce evidence that was related to a crime. Now we know that people who are um, people who are uh, included in these stop and, and frisk encounters are people of minority more than than anything. So you're essentially you're saying 97% <laughs> of these stop and frisk encounters were based on appearance than anything else. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Anyways, well, real fast, I forgot. I I went to jail over it too. I went to jail over it, and I went to jail because another time they pulled us over at like a two a.m. freshman year in college. They pulled us over because he said I was in the back. I was in the back seat sleep. He said I was in the back seat jumping around in the back seat of the car, and I needed a seatbelt on. And he asked for my license, which all this is a lie because at that time you didn't need a seatbelt on in the back of a back seat of a car unless you were under 50 pounds. Mm. So that's the way that, that he, he, he uh, told his lie to get my license. Yeah. And that's the way he told his lie to pull us over. And then I ended up going to jail. Now I went to jail because I had an old, old ticket that I hadn't paid. <laughs> but the point is, is that the way that they pulled us over right yeah. you know then make but he has a nice car stereotyping oh we're gonna find something on them so we can meet our quota so anyway yeah. i'm on <laughs> <laughs> um all right kendra go ahead i'm in a really interesting position with that question um i have a very close relationship with law enforcement officers mm-hmm. uh, as high ranking as police chiefs personal relationship like have each other's cell phone number um, all the way down to um, deputies that recently graduated from Sheriff's Academy, Um, CHP officers, uh, local police departments. um, I have a lot of great relationships with with some really good people um, and can say firsthand, not, not philosophically if you will like we say you know air air black men don't sell dope right but we get treated as such right when we get stopped um i can offer that same sentiment with law enforcement every cop is not a bad cop Mm -hmm. the problem is there's not enough being done about the bad cops so i said that to say it's it, it, it has a huge impact on what my personal experience has been I've been in situations that felt bad and was able to find a way to mention a particular officer and the situation went from bad to okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Simply because I knew an officer and I'm being vague because a lot of these officers, personal friends, there have been situations in certain cities that have happened, high profile situations where I've had senior officers confide in me as a friend because they trust me to protect, you know, the confidence of the conversation that have said, that was a bad, that was a bad shooting, Mm -hmm. Kendrick. That was a bad stop, Kendrick. That was a bad situation, Kendrick. We're actually working on, you know, resolving some issues with that officer, Kendrick. Men that trust me and share those kinds of things. And they also share why they can't, speak publicly about those things um and i'm open to elaborate on that to 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 speak to your question um yes i've been stopped 
Yes, I've been profiled. Yes, I know stories of people being profiled. Um, one that sticks out in my mind, which is not me personally, I just saw this, the, the gentleman himself told this story. I saw it in the last day or two. He's, fi he's a firefighter. And he was in his uniform, not the, so when you hear that, people think that, you know, the the, the 90 pounds of, of fire retardant gear, not that gear, but like the, the shirt with the badge and the, you know, where he kind of looks like a police officer, except for his shoulder patch says fire department, right? He was in that uniform and had his radio in hand, was talking to someone he knew in the he, uh, she was in the driver's seat of the car he was on the passenger side two police pulled up guns drawn and were yelling at them to get out of the car he gets out of the car he's obeying commands and says to the law enforcement officers i'm one of you i'm a first responder and with a ra with a radio now when i say radio we're talking these you guys have seen fire department radios these things are huge right mm -hmm. um with that in his hand and the cop is still is like, I don't, you know, get down, shut up, right? What do you got in the car, right? Goes through the car, doesn't find anything. I'm making a long story short. And the, and the officer says something to the effect of, well, you have too much stuff in, in the back for me to search that. You, you, you should count yourself lucky and he drives off. The firefighter said the next day, a senior officer from the police department, I believe it was, it was either the next day or within a couple of days, came to the fire station where that, that firefighter worked and said, I reviewed the, the body cam footage from that officer and I want to apologize for what happened to you. The officers that did it were not present. There was no official report of wrongdoing, just a I'm sorry. As a believer, I'm sorry is, is valuable, right? Mm -hmm. We consider what we've done for Christ to forgive us, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but that show feels some kind of way, right? Like, what are you doing to change that officer? What about repentance? What about, yeah, exactly. What are you doing? Where is that off? You're saying I'm sorry, but he need, he did it. Mm-hmm. And he come apologize. So these are the stories. You know, I, I, it's easier for me to share that story than to share personal experience. Personal experience gets me a little riled up. Yes, I've been out of a car. Um, yes, I've yelled at an officer. Uh, I had an officer almost run me off the road. If he was in a plane car, I, at the red light, looked across and fussing at him like, what was that all about? He changed lanes without a signal. Um, the light changed. I ended up pulled up, pulled over, and that in that situation discovered that that was an undercover cop, and asked to get out of my car. At the time, my now wife, then girlfriend, was with me. My old, now oldest daughter was my only daughter at the time. She was in the back seat, and in the midst of giving me a hard time, they're talking to her like, "Hi, little girl," and I said, "Nah, bro, don't say nothing to my child. Stop talking to my child. You're not gonna treat me like dirt." and then be all super friendly with my daughter to try and look like the good guy, like daddy did something wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. Stop talking to my child. If you have an issue with me, you can deal with me. We'll move through this situation, but do not speak to my child. You have no right, you know? Um, so I've been through, yeah, it's happened to me. And it's, it's, um, 
it's real. It's, it's frustrating to hear people say that it's not real when you get pulled on a regular stop, you get pulled over and you're pacing, you're breathing because your heart rate starts going up. I want to switch gears and talk about justice and injustice. Uh, just kind of talk about what they are and, you know, what scripture has to say um, about it. When So justice, just at its basic definition, essentially is described as fairness, fairness or righteousness. So fairness, uh, either right judgment or right conduct, okay? And... So you really can't separate the two. They go they go hand in hand. And when I looked up that word in scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, it was the same you know, Hebrew word that was used, which was um, mishpat. And that's exactly what it meant. <clears throat> it meant, you know, uh, uh, fairness, uh, righteous judgment or righteous conduct. And what's interesting is pretty much most of the time when 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 justice was used it was talking about god's people it was god dealing with his people um and and if and if justice was going to be exercised like it started with god's people so <clears throat> and kind of what i took from that was as believers you know we we see an injustice being done we want justice to be uh, to be something that's practiced, obviously within our own faith, but even from a social standpoint. And but it starts with us, just like everything else. Judgment starts with us. Justice starts with us. If we're not practicing justice ourselves, be it uh, fair treatment or uh, our righteous treatment or right righteous living, then you know we certainly can't ask that. <laughs> Uh, people outside of the faith, um, you know, be it law enforcement or or uh, the legislators or whoever the case may be. But anyways, I want to give you guys' thoughts on what justice, you know, what justice means to you, injustice, um, and what that looks like. Uh, Cornell, you can go first. All right, I get the first treatment today. <laughs> um <laughs> So um, when, you know, we're talking about justice and injustice, um, just some biblical references first as I go and then, then I'll go. You know, of course, we know Micah 6, 8. That's the, one of the most famous passages. I'm pretty sure this past Sunday and the Sunday before, almost every pastor in America preached on Micah 6, 8. You know, <laughs> and that, uh, he has shown you, all mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, right? So he's saying that's a, a form of biblical justice. But I, I like Proverbs 21, 15, and it says, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, talking about, you know, justice, I want to stick with Proverbs 21, 15 and just say you know, one or two words about that, is that it brings joy to the righteous. Well, one of the things that we know all through scripture, as you just said, it was talking about God's people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when, when it was mostly talked about, right? And Paul says, what do we have to do with the world, right? What do we have to do with them, right? 
we're able to hold each other accountable and judge each other is because because of the accountability, right, as believers. And so one thing that when we talk about injustice, I'm not even going to look at the unbeliever. What I want to talk about, you know, just as the justice delay, this is foundation for me, from everything that I'll be saying for it on, is there's, we as believers have blended the gospel just as they did in the Old Testament, just as they did, you know, coming into the New Testament, we've blended it. And there is this new Democrat Christianity. There's this new Republican Christianity. There's this new patriotism Christianity. There's this new white evangelical Christianity. And there's even a black power Christianity, right? But we've blended the gospel and we look, there's no true biblical lordship. So there's no true biblical lordship then as Jesus actually says lordship should be then you're always going to have injustice. And that's what we see today. Countless people, I'm pretty sure almost every officer or politician or policymaker will say they're Christian, but yet their policies show that they're not. Their conduct showed that they're not. You know, uh, all these things show that they're not. So justice, you know, is to, to love and to show mercy and to walk humbly with our God, right? But how can you effectively do that if you've blended the gospel? Yeah. Kindred? <laughs> oh, I think, uh, wait, did you mute yourself? <laughs> My bad. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> I, years ago, I, I stopped calling it the judicial system or the justice system because justice is rarely served. Mm-hmm. I called it the legal system. Mm-hmm. Um, as Cornell has has elaborated on, um, for the believer, justice starts with it should start and end with God's word. The importance of that in how it applies to the non-believer from our perspective. And I say that because to the non-believer, that's just a book, unfortunately. Um, The way that it applies to the non-believer is trying to help them understand that when right and wrong starts from within you, then there is no right or wrong. When you are the center of the moral compass, there is no morality. It's ever changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, from generation to generation, and not even that far, from person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, blessed with the opportunity to to uh, have had an extensive conversation more than once with a retired judge, and she was she through her career had become a sister too. She had become an appellate court judge, and she helped me understand how the system is designed to function and the checks and balances of the system. She said, most of your frustration, and she acknowledged my frustration. She said, most of your frustration um, applies to lawyers and and how they function from the district attorneys on down, right? Um, And in conversation with her, I said, yeah, but there's some corrupt judges. Mm -hmm. Let's not pretend like there's not. You know, we've seen situations happen that we all feel like yeah that's not right that shouldn't have came out that way but then we also have to consider 
judges and uh, juries are looking at evidence and they're trying to remove emotion from the decision. And what we experience as black men and black women, it's very difficult to remove emotion because it's happened for so long. Um, and what has happened includes the loss of life. This isn't being spit on. Mm -hmm. This isn't being name called. Um, this is I'm going to read something very short. Prior to the 1960s, rioting or race riots consisted of whites burning down and destroying black communities simply because they didn't want them there. Mostly in major northern, western, and midwestern cities where the population of black citizens grew tremendously due to the great migration. Blacks fled from Jim Crow South to seek refuge and to find jobs and homes. The competition was fierce. Thousands and thousands of blacks flooded the cities, resulting in white flight, making quotes in the air as I say that. White people were angry that blacks were taking over jobs and building their own communities. Even white soldiers that have been stationed away from home were furious when they got back to this change, again, making quotes in the air. This is how race riots started. Whites were not too happy about desegregation in their cities with subliminal attempts to keep their city segregated. Blacks were not allowed in the white part of town. Black homes and communities were destroyed and burned down by angry white mobs and countless deaths occurred. Uh, here's only just a few examples of race riots that took place in our country. 1921, May 30th, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street Massacre. Uh, 1922, uh, in Kerrigan, Texas, 1920. I'm not going to go through this list. 22, 23, 1930, 31, 35, 35, 43, 19, a bunch of them in 1943, 1940. This list goes all the way through 1965. 1968, the bombing in Philadelphia, the Black Power Movement that was there. Only time the government bombed. Oh, no, no, no. Black Wall Street was the government bombing. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm saying this is current, like in the 80s. So it went even in the 20s. Got you. So, so... So these are situations that are not taught in schools, that we as a community are handing down, you know, information that we're passing from person to person. Um, that information was shared to me, some of which I knew by my white cousin. There's a, a significant number of interracial relationships in my family. Mm -hmm. um, my first cousin is married to um, a white man and everyone in my family you guys know based on our relationship I, I value family and I don't say names as much as I say cousin bro brother sister uncle like I, I because of my value in family the only time I use names is if there's more than one cousin around me so then instead of saying hey cousin I'll say you know instead of saying brother to you Ryan or you Cornell if you're both around, then I say Ryan or Cornell, but if it's just one of you, I, you guys know this, I call you brother um, because of my inherent value in, in you know, relationship. So, so he's my cousin, he's not my cousin-in-law, he's not, he's my cousin. And it's dope to watch him, even in some, being somebody who's married to a black woman that you would think gets it, making quotes in the air, he's very transparent about his challenges and his struggles and that he's still constantly learning mm -hmm. um, and trying to unlearn 
racist thoughts and racist behavior. Implicit we hear the word, say again? Implicit bias is a thing. Exactly, exactly. We hear the word racist and we think of it as an, as an aggressive action. And sometimes it's just a, 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 mis, a, a thought of misunderstanding or a misapplication of a thought that needs to be corrected. And not enough white people, I just watched something on, on A&E this morning um, where you saw some white folks, you know, it was a, a Zoom meeting kind of situation with 15 or 20 different people, many of them notable folks, some black, some white, and to see a white woman say she was thankful for what Jamel Hill said, who was one of the people in this Zoom meeting, she said, because it opened my eyes. And she also thanked Jamel Hill for her, for her um, gentleness, I think was the word she used. Like we need to stop being aggressive, all of us being angry, aggressive black people. Like slow down for a second because some white folks want to listen and they want to learn and they want to change, you know? Um, I think I talked too long, so I'm gonna stop. <laughs> <laughs> You're fine. Um, just gonna add to that. I mean, I, <clears throat> you know, People sometimes will bring up <clears throat> because because of the outcry of the of, of the community of people of color. People will bring start to bring data into the equation, and um, one of the ones that's been surfacing, um, you know, on like my my social media personally, are numbers related to police killings, right? And there's no one. <laughs> so like, well, let, let, let me let me. Let me <laughs> Let me start by saying that police brutality <laughs> is much more. But oh, forgive me, that was point. I shouldn't have said that. But you know, you have stop and frisk, you have choking, you have harassment, you have beatings, you have property damage, and honestly, you know, statistics show that most of you know most acts of police brutality go unreported. Like, so there's probably more to the equation that than we even know about. Okay, but let's just let's just you know, talk about police killing um, for, for the moment. And so, you know, they've been showing data and these are police killings from 2017 to 2020, and they do it by race. And, you know, the numbers <clears throat> for whites are the highest for each year and blacks are uh, coming second. But I just want to talk about those numbers because I feel like uh, analytics require um, context, okay? So I want to start by saying that number one, whites make up roughly three fourths of the U.S. So if they are um, being killed by police, uh, if their numbers are higher, I feel like that's an organic occurrence, and that actually makes sense. But let's let's dive a little deeper. So in 2017, 457 whites were killed, while 223 blacks. Okay, so the gap there is 234. 2018, 399 whites were killed versus 209 blacks. The gap becomes uh, 190. In 2019, 370 whites were killed by police to the 235 uh, blacks that were killed. The gap shrinks. It goes down to 135. Okay? Um, going to 2020, the year we're in now. Not that the year is over, but... <clears throat> Uh, 42 whites were killed by police to 31 blacks that were killed by police. Now the gap is at 11, okay? 
that's important to say because if whites make up three fourths of the US population and blacks, what are we like 12, 14%? Then that means that blacks are two times, at least two times more likely to be killed by police per capita. And most of the time they're unarmed. And that's alarming. Like that's, 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 that's why the outcry is happening. That's why, you know, you see the, not that I agree with it, but you see the, the riots and the protesting and stuff happening because those statistics are alarming. Um, you know, you talk about like incarceration, <clears throat> you know, if it, it's interesting that blacks can be, can make up 12 to 14% of the population, yet 40% of them are incarcerated. Blacks lead the incarceration population. Okay, whites are at, 30, or at 34%. I, uh, there's a couple of studies that came across my attention. Um, so it, it was this was a study that was done in 2012. And I just want to read this for you. So it said, factoring in prior criminal records, Blacks jail sentence sentencing tend to be 10% longer than whites for similar crimes. Okay. People, so a white man and a black man that committed the same crime, okay, the black man was still sentenced, the sentence was 10% longer, even if the white man's criminal history was worse. It didn't matter, okay? Arrests. Um, in 2016, I think they estimated 69.6% uh, of total arrests, no matter what the crime was, okay? Because you know there's like blue collar crime and there's white collar crime, right? 69.6% were white, 26.9% were black. Yet the incarceration percentage for blacks is, is much higher than whites. Like these are, these are like statistical anomalies, okay? Or maybe they're not. <laughs> um, but talking about, you know, white collar crime versus blue collar crime. And for, for my listeners that don't know, White collar crime is a crime that's committed usually by people in a higher social class. Blue collar crime is is a crime that's committed usually by people in a lower social class. Okay, um, and you know, so people who are like in poverty versus people who aren't. Okay, and there's been a lot of studies that show that um, your socioeconomical situation is directly correlated to the kind of crimes that you commit. Okay, and that a the more poverty stricken um, environments in, in neighborhoods and cities are committing, you know, particular crimes are committing more crime. Okay, at higher rates. But you show that if there's a reduction in poverty, there's usually a reduction in crime. It doesn't go away completely, but there's a reduction in it. Um, so I just wanted to throw out some of those. Uh, statistics just you know so people didn't think we were just <laughs> you know talking aimlessly but that there are there are numbers that kind of verify why we go through what we go through if that makes sense yeah one thing just to add to your stat right there make it real quick as it, it i mean it's been all over the news but not everybody wants to see certain things mm -hmm. but a couple of years well, i'm afraid it wasn't all over the news it's all over certain social media mm -hmm. but uh two years ago there was a judge in pennsylvania who got 28 years because he worked out a back-end deal with a warden for a prison, one of the private prisons, where he was sentencing. It says youth, but that youth, of course, was 
predominantly minorities and poor people mm-hmm. and black people. And they would literally work deals out to where, you know, if you went in for a speeding ticket, he would find something and now you're going to prison, right? So he was lengthening people's sentences or switching their sentences so that he could get kickbacks from the warden because he was sending people to prison. So you look at stats, even stats are skewed, you know, because of a corrupt system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the prison system, that's a whole other discussion for another day. <laughs> uh, no, it's... <clears throat> I will say one thing um, about law enforcement. It's interesting. I was talking to my dad, and he was, uh, I think even before I was born, he was actually wanting to be a, a police officer. I think in, uh, at one point in time in Richmond, I think he also applied in Oakland. And he was just telling me about, you know, he was recalling what the, pro- the hiring process was like. <laughs> and he was telling me, just how thorough it was. I mean, you, you talking about, it's not just a background check, you know what I mean? They go, they, they talk to like high school teachers. They talk to, you know, friends, family. I mean, they went and talked to his ex-wife um, who of course tried to sabotage it as much as she could <laughs> based on his words. And, um, and, and, be, and I think, and because <clears throat> of that situation, they actually focused on that. And he ended up not being able to, uh, you know, get hired, and it wasn't like a an official thing. So what they did was they did a psych evaluation, right? right. And they found that he had some sensitivity to um, his previous marriage, and they were like, you know, we just kind of feel like that's something that you still need to work out, you know. So we're not saying no. We're just saying take some time, you know, figure that out, right. and come back, okay? And, and it wasn't based on what she said, but based on his disposition about that past relationship. Yeah, because he said they were focusing a lot on the questions they were asked, and they were kind of like, almost like badgering him, you know what I mean? And he was starting to get irritated, and I think they picked up on that. So anyways, I say all that to say, and even the point that he was making was that, you know, if, if law enforcement is, if they're hiring people, if they're hiring anyone, they're gonna know everything there is to know about that person. And right. if one of the people that they're hiring is a closet racist, for example, they're going to know about it. If, yep. one of, if one of the people that's that they're hiring, that they're making, right? If one of the people that they're hiring is ex-military, who are like, you know, fifty percent more likely to commit <clears throat> acts of harassment and police brutality. By the way, they're going to know about it, you know. But yet, they hire them anyways. I posted a video on my Facebook, and I don't know if you guys get a chance to see it, but if not, go ahead and check it out. And uh, I don't know if you guys know who Michael Jai White is. That's the, that's the black guy. He's an actor, yeah. also martial artist. He played Spawn. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, he was uh, talking about a number of things in this, in this interview, and he recalled when he was uh, denied, you know, working for law enforcement, essentially because his IQ was too high. Um, you're now, too smart to be a cop. Right. You're too smart to be a cop. Like, and that stuck out to me just in the sense that, you know, um, it's almost as if they, like, they prefer people who are corruptible, prefer people who aren't going to think for themselves, are, um, like, are you really trying to hire someone who is going to uphold the utmost integrity, level right. of integrity? You know what I mean? Because... Right. Well, that's what they say they do. And I, and, and I want to be clear with my listeners that, um, you know, you talk about this idea of systemic racism and it's often 
wrongly interpreted as an accusation that everyone in the system is racist. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. that's not right. what I'm saying. In fact, systemic racism means almost the opposite. It means that we have systems and institutions that produce racially um, disparate outcomes, right? Regardless of the intentions of the people who work within them. So you have probably the majority of them are not racist, you know what I mean? Or, or, or there's a percentage of them who aren't. Okay, I won't go into specifics, specifics, but when you consider that much of the criminal justice system was built and honed and firmly established during the Jim Crow era, <laughs> Right. where almost everyone conservatives included you know they'll concede it was rifle racism this is pretty much intuitive and the right. modern criminal justice system helped preserve racial order it kept black people you know in order and that was ultimately like that was the, the purpose that it served right um but <clears throat> um anyways i want to i want to go ahead and stop it there um I mean, there's there's more to talk about, and we're definitely going to, on the next episode, we'll be talking about uh, God's view, and I mean, we kind of we started to touch on it, but there's definitely more that we can say. God's view on uh, justice and justice, what that looks like, and what we as uh, believers, and even if you're not a believer, I think there's some practical steps that you can take to exact change. So. Um, we'll go into that in my next episode so definitely tune in but that wraps it up for now for this episode of Bridging the Gap if you would like to subscribe please do so you can find this um, podcast on on pretty much any major platform listening platform such as Anchor um, Spotify um, I believe you can find it on like Apple Podcasts as well but uh, if you're not able to find it on whatever your uh, uh, platform preference is, you can certainly request it. But that's all for now. Tune in next time. God bless.